Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hey, hey, listeners, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, covered in muddy paw prints from my filthy dog in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) And me, Conrad, trying to figure out the rules of cricket in Cambridge, UK. Ah, yes. In this podcast, we discuss fantastical films, sci-fi, horror and fantasy, because going a day without slime, blood or mythical beasts is not a normal day. Mm. (laughs) Conrad, how are you today? I am very well, thank you you how are you very well indeed very well any mailbag oh we've had loads of comments in the mailbag this week so Ah. we had a new itunes review oh yes yes very exciting a hasim rivers from the u.s wrote spot-on reviews of lesser-known movies. Being a dumb American, I really enjoy the charmingly funny British banter as well. Thanks for this. Mm, I am very British. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a review that's about me, you see. Oh, right. So yes. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, of course, listeners, please give us more reviews. Maybe... Comment on the Australian banter, too, or the, the New Zealand banter. Ah, oh, it's all very confusing, really. <laughs> it, is. it is. We also had Brian Kletch on Prince of Darkness when I suggested that maybe Tim Curry should have emerged from the mirror at the end of Prince of Darkness. Uh, he said, oh, yes, Darkness, he was legendary in that role. Oh, nice pun there. Yeah, I love Brian's puns. <laughs> On the episode Triangle, we got a comment from Christian Henson, the composer. No way. Yeah. He came back to us and said, The score that features my future wife. She provided amazing vocals for this score, and it's kind of how we got to know each other. Oh, wow. That's a great piece of trivia. Yeah. So a special memory for Christian Henson on Triangle. Mm. And uh, uh, Christian, if you are listening, you are welcome to be a guest on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. I would love to have Christian on the show, actually. Yeah. He's, he's great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We also got a comment from Vincent Vidal on Triangle, particularly the multiple Sally scene, which is pretty disturbing. He says that's uh, his favourite movie. And this scene in particular gives me the chills every time. And the acting of Melissa George is so perfect. Mm, yeah, it's a chilling scene for sure. It is. So loads of great comments. And keep them coming, people. Keep them coming. Yeah. So, Conrad, what are we discussing today? I don't know. I'll go over to the oubliette and find out. Ah. Oh, get some exercise. Oh, oh Wow. Really loud in there. What? I can't hear you. Loads of government guys in hazmat suits. Sorry, I still can't hear you, Conrad. I'm just gonna get out of here. It fell from the sky. What a cacophony. What? I've no idea what's going on in there. It looks like it's been cordoned off, and there are (laughs) helicopters and hazmat suits. Wow. So what do we have today, Conrad? We have The Blob, the 1988 remake American science fiction horror film written and directed by Chuck Russell, co-written by Frank Darabont, and starring Shawnee Smith, Kevin Dillon, Donovan Leach... Jeffrey DeMunn, Candy Clark, and Joe Seneca. Mm, I'm guessing some sort of killer substance. <laughs> yes, familiar territory for us from the stuff, actually. <laughs> so, when a meteorite crashes near the small, football-obsessed town of Arborville, a homeless man decides to prod it with a stick. <laughs> He's immediately engulfed in a gelatinous, pulsating goo that seems to have a mind of its own. Three high school students, Paul, the jock, Meg, 
the cheerleader, and bad boy Brian, the mullet-wearing motorcycle thug, try to help the old man but find themselves under attack from a malevolent blob that grows with every victim it absorbs. The adults won't believe them, and the government agents in hazmat suits who swarm the town seem to have another agenda entirely. Will they save themselves and their town, or will they be dissolved into the Red Terror? Oh, so much suspense. I know, and even more suspense, we have a special guest joining us today to discuss the movie. We'll be right back. Welcome back, listeners. Joining us today is a filmmaker who's directed commercials, comedy shorts, stand-up specials, music videos like Fuck Shit Stack for Reggie Watts, and is one half of the adorable duo on the popular YouTube channel, So You're Dating a Vegan. But for fans of our favourite genres, he's probably best known as the director of one of the most strikingly original suspense thrillers in recent memory, the Clove Hitch Killer. I'm very excited to welcome Duncan Skiles. Hey. Hey. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. It's very exciting to have you here because, mm. as I alluded to in the introduction, I really enjoyed The Clove Hitch Killer. It was one of the most exciting films that I saw last year, so I'm very keen to talk with you. Well, thank you very much for saying that, and I'm keen to... Uh, share whatever insight I may have to offer with you. I mean, that that movie for me was, uh, it's one of those movies that it finishes and then you just sit there in silence for a good half hour just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, that's better than um, some of the reactions that I got. The, the opening night was at the IFC Theater in the Village in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I was under the impression that it was going to be like a real premiere, but it, it was sort of like this tiny screening room that they give to things that they have a mandatory theatrical release on. So it was like, I don't know, there were maybe like a dozen people in there and I was really high and (laughs) which was a mistake. And I was with my cousin and the composer and the composer's parents, God bless them. They're really nice people, nice folks, good friends of mine. um, But they they just did not get the movie at all. Wow. And the first thing they said to me at the end when they came out of the theater was, his dad said, wow, another one in the can. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but I'm glad that it uh, has uh, been effective on you. I was going for something very specific, and I think that it resonates with a specific frequency on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like I just love more deliberate filmmaking and, and something that doesn't really follow a kind of templated genre. And, and just the fact that, the characters were just so well-developed and so kind of fleshed out. You just don't normally see that in a horror or a thriller movie. Mm-hmm. And so you you were so much more invested. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely my goal was to create a world that felt fleshed out so that when dark stuff started to happen, it felt especially unsettling. Yeah. Because the world the world was supposed to feel normal and, and real. And that's one of the benefits of nobody wanting to make your film is that you have a lot of time to develop it mm, sure. and continue to improve upon it and keep adding stuff and deepening it. It really shows. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I really wanted to ask you about was the structure of the film, because in much the same way that the style of the film, the way the film is lit, the way the film is performed avoids all genre conventions, as Dan mentions, the structure of the film completely plays them because it feels as though the second and third acts have been reversed because you get to watch... I don't want to give away too much about the movie. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you get to see sort of what would in another movie be played as the climax of the movie, a final reveal leading to a climax that's really unsettling and terrifying. Yeah. But that's actually the end of Act 2. And I don't want to give anything away, but somebody walks into a door frame and I literally sat upright and said, holy shit! <laughs> because yeah. I was just so 
bound up in the, how tense the scene was and I did not expect what happened to happen. Great. And then you spend the third act unraveling that and going back and figuring out how you got there. Yeah, yeah. And I was just amazed by this puzzle box construction that you had going there. Mm. Great. I'm glad it worked for you like that because that developed organically through just telling the story to people as I was working it out in my head. And I wanted you know, to get to a certain point where the tension was just unbearable. And in order to do that, I kind of had to get rid of the main character and just follow the dad. And so put people in this like weird state of mind of like, where is this movie going? And that was somewhat inspired by Psycho, the way that they get rid of the main character 45 minutes in. Yeah. And um, the liberating feeling that that gives you as a filmmaker and an audience member of when a movie just kind of like untethers and goes in a different direction. And then when I was telling it to people, it got to that point as I was telling it where I would say and then behind him in the doorway dot 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 and everybody would flip out (laughs) and um, so I knew that that was going to work but I also knew that the story is about the son and it's about like his emotional journey to getting to the point that he's at at the end of the movie and so I wanted to tell it from his perspective as well and it was also an homage to Back to the Future 2 which I've always thought was amazing the way that you get to see (laughs) Ah, Back to the Future 1 from somebody else's perspective. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're trying to tell as many people as we can find to watch this movie because it's amazing. Mm. Great. It really is. Thanks. But we should talk about the film that we're going to be talking <laughs> about today as well. Although the idea of getting rid of your main character early on crops up here as well. I know. that You're talking about the high school football hero. Yes. The high school football hero. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's get into that. So the film that you chose for us to discuss today Today is The Blob, the 1988 remake directed by Chuck Russell and written by Chuck Russell and none other than Frank Darabont. So I guess the first question is, uh, why did you choose it? And what's your relationship with this movie? When did you first see it? I must have been about 10 years old. Wow. And I saw it on VHS. It has, as I was reminded when I was looking it up, striking VHS cover art. Mm. It's of that character's demise. Mm. The guy who's like being dissolved inside of a blob. (laughs) And I chose it because it stuck with me, but I don't remember, I didn't remember specifically why until I rewatched it and some, a lot of things like came back. But I wasn't really sure if it was a good movie or not. Mm. Maybe I'd revisited clips over the years but I never like sat down to watch it again mm-hmm. and you know I just wanted to know if it was good well that's what we're all about here <laughs> <laughs> we love revisiting things from our childhood that we dimly remember as being great when we were 10 and then you watch them again and you think hmm <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Dan had you seen this one before no no this is a first time for me and I'm shocked that I haven't seen this movie because it's exactly the type of horror movie I love mm. It's black comedy at the same time as being just shockingly disturbing and gruesome. So disturbing. Mm. Because it takes a little bit of time for it to kind of kick in as well. It's not until like 12 minutes in, I think, that you first even see any blob entity. So it takes its time to develop characters a little bit. And yes, they are a bit cliche characters, but (laughs) it still takes that time. They're not completely two-dimensional. And yeah, like we've mentioned already, what you think is going to be a main character, the football player that goes to date Meg, the other main character, and then you think, oh yeah, he's going to be the hero of this film. But he doesn't. Mm -hmm. He gets killed. It's like the second killing in this film. (laughs) So yeah, especially with that very first kill of the homeless guy when they uncover the sheet and he's just a torso with just a puddle of melted flesh. Um, Yeah. I knew I was in for a thrill ride and I knew, yes, this is the film I wanted to see. And yeah, it doesn't hold back. That's the thing. It does not hold back. No. (laughs) Had you seen it before, Conrad? I had seen it before because I went through a phase of watching all of these movies (laughs) all on VHS the same. And again, I was always attracted to anything that had really disgusting cover art. So I watched this along with the fly and the thing, not realising at the time that they are all remakes of 50s classics, which is kind of an interesting phase, I guess. It's just the filmmakers that were coming of age at that time and could direct something were adapting something they remember from their childhoods, I guess. Right. So now you're getting lots of 80s stuff because... (laughs) 
everybody that was a kid in the 80s is coming of age as well. So it's just a, mm. one of those cycles. Yeah, I think you also had sort of 50s nostalgia that wasn't necessarily a remake. Stuff like Arachnophobia feels like mm. a 50s creature feature. Yeah. And then wasn't there a movie called Matinee mm. with John Goodman? Yeah. And then, of course, Back to the Future goes back to 1955. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely that generation looking back. Mm. Yeah, so The Blob, of course, originally 1958 is largely distinguished or remembered for being one of the first roles for somebody credited at the time as Stephen McQueen, mm. the great Steve McQueen. And again, that one had teens rescuing the town despite the lack of help from non-believing adults which is pretty much the situation that you have here, except that instead of the clean-cut quarterback and the head cheerleader, the quarterback gets offed pretty quickly. Mm. And instead, we have the mulleted bad boy of the town. His hair is so out of control in this movie. Oh, I can't yeah. imagine <laughs> that anybody ever thought that that looked good. It looks like a wig. Yeah, Is it a wig? I don't know that. <laughs> no, I don't think so. His hair is untethered from the rest of his face and body like it, it has a life of its own it's a blob unto itself sure is why did anybody ever think that hairstyle was cool i don't know mullets are a mystery they really are that's a super mullet it's like a curly haired perm mullet yeah it is just like on its face laughable that hairstyle yeah and he's not really a very imposing guy either. He seems to be fairly slight. Mm. Yeah, but I like that about that character. I feel like there's a vulnerability to him. Yeah, yeah, he's a lot more complex than the town's bad boy. You get much more of a sense that he's a character like River Phoenix's character in Stand By Me, that he's been painted bad. Yeah. And whenever anything goes down, he's always the first person they arrest, whether he was there or not. Yeah. He may not be as bad as he makes out. And actually, he seems quite kind. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. To the homeless guy yeah. he's sort of comforting the homeless guy that's been attacked by the blob there was one thing i wasn't sure about the film in terms of yeah he gets arrested for melting people in a hospital i mean <laughs> what did they think that he did yeah exactly welcome right. boys <laughs> just went around with buckets of acid throwing it on people like what what's going on here yeah <laughs> and yeah he's arrested by jeffrey demun who seem to be specialising in small-town sheriffs at that time. I just watched The Hitcher uh, in memory of Rutger Hauer, who passed recently. Ooh, that would be another movie for your series. Have you guys done that one? No, no not yet. I just remember there's a scene where this guy's eating french fries and it turns out to be somebody's finger. Yes. <laughs> and there's another scene where somebody gets pulled apart by two big rig trucks. Jennifer Jason Lee, yeah. That's the only two things I remember from The Hitcher. Yeah. Well, Rutger Hauer is amazing in that movie, but yeah. he is constantly pursued by Jeffrey DeMunn, probably wearing the same costume as he is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> mm. He was all right, and then, and then I was very shocked when he turned up to be a melted face on the side of the phone booth. Yeah, yeah, I know. That, that to me was like the double kill for somebody that you thought you were going to be with for the rest of the movie. Mm. And also the owner of the diner as well. She gets completely yeah. Um, yeah. smothered in the phone booth. Like I felt like this movie was so kind of self-aware. Like it knew the routes that you thought it was going down and then it would be like, uh-uh-uh. Right. Nah, kill this character and kill this character. <laughs> like you, even at the start when they were setting up the football character and there's that scene where the ball is thrown and he goes to catch it and it's like, oh, this is going to show up in the film later. He's going to have to catch something. Right. But no, he gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the screenwriters is Frank Darabont, who's like famously known to just adapt Stephen King novels. Yeah. Uh, and so there's quite a lot of Stephen King references in here as well to um, The Stand. Really? Yeah. So in The Stand, there's a virus that the government are working on and it gets unleashed accidentally and kills off a whole bunch of people. Uh, there's apparently a, a character in The Stand called the Trash Can Man. Mm -hmm. uh, and the homeless guy in this movie uh, is credited as the Can Man. Oh. So, I don't know, tiny little references to The Stand. Yeah, and of course, Brian Flagg, he's probably named after Randall Flagg from The Stand as well in that case. Mm. Oh. Mm. And it's got that small town 
Stone vibe that you see in a, in a lot of Stephen King stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So he's just like a Stephen King super fan. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> he's done a fair few, hasn't he? Um, Shawshank, of course, and The Green Mile and The Mist. Mm. And then, of course, went on to kick off The Walking Dead, but then yeah. seemed to have been iced out of it, which is a real shame. Right. It's a very well-written movie. Mm. It does a really great job at the beginning of the movie of setting up lots of things that will pay off later. For sure. Very economically. So you get the motorcycle jump. Uh You even get something like Meg's brother's jacket zip getting stuck at one point as he's leaving the house, which of course ends up being a tense moment later when it freezes up at an inopportune time. Mm. Even the ice-making truck, whatever it is, that ends up being the deus ex machina at the end of the movie. When was that set up? I was wondering about that. Right at the start. Yeah, it's right at the start. It's in the garage that Flag goes to to get his bike fixed. Okay, so was he present when it was found out that the blob was repelled by ice? I just remember him running away. Yeah. And then she finds out with the fire extinguisher. Yeah. And then he returns with an ice truck. I know. Is that how it went down? I felt like they cut out something (laughs) that explains that. (laughs) Because, yeah, I thought Just a shot of him looking and being like, oh, okay, got it. I'm (laughs) off to get the ice truck now. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, I suppose they do hide in the freezer in the diner and it doesn't come in there. Right. But I'm not sure he necessarily says, oh, look, it's the cold. Right. I don't necessarily make the connection. Right. Also, um, there was this thing where her laundry was shrunk and she had to borrow her mom's cardigan. And that was made a point of. And I thought that that was going to be a payoff at some point. But was that ever? No. (laughs) No. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) She just ends up going on a date looking like her mom. Yeah. It's just really weird. (laughs) Because you know the filmmaker want this to be in the 50s like they want this to be mm. like an homage to the 50s and if mm. they could give Kevin Dillon a greaser look yeah. they gave him like the 50s rebel look except for the 80s mullet yeah <laughs> But it's like so nostalgic for, you know, the old timey movie theater and all that stuff. Mm. I mean, I, I felt like this film really was a homage to, yeah, 50s horror movies, creature features, especially with those kind of scenes where it's obviously a blue screen or green screen in the background with some miniature creature uh, and then people just shrieking and running away and looking back at the camera yeah. and that sort of thing. <laughs> like that was all over this movie. And I kind of like that it's a very, very competent, well-made horror horror movie that knows what it's doing but also a tribute so it's kind of like Scream how Scream is a, a tribute to all the slasher films that came out in the 70s and 80s Yeah, and this is a tribute to all the creature features that came out in the 50s yeah mm-hmm. it is very solid solidly written solidly directed but there's something about it that doesn't quite work. Uh-huh. Like, I don't care about halfway through. Oh, uh, yes. And I remember feeling this when I was a kid as well. I don't know what it is. I'd like to solve this mystery. It's just one of those enigmatic things of the formula of filmmaking. Yeah. Maybe it's something in the casting. Mm. The music is terrible. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I love the music. <laughs> oh, I, no. I think the music is You love the music. <laughs> yeah, no, but in, in, in all the, like, it does cheesy really well. Like, it, again, it's a homage to the old 50s or even like War of the Worlds kind of music where it's just like overly dramatic and theatrical. And yeah, I think it really does work. It would be so much better if it wasn't synthetic though. Like if you're going for over the top, don't do it like Tangerine Dream. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, me and Conrad always debate about this. I love the whole prog rock score stuff. I love the score to uh, Phantasm. It's just ridiculously proggy, but <laughs> something about it, it still works for me. I think it does. Yeah. yeah. I felt like it was going for a more classic score feeling, but they didn't have the budget to hire an orchestra. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Probably. It's exactly the kind of synthesizer score that I hate. Yeah. <laughs> I, just... I can totally get down with a synth score. Yeah. Like, I love Halloween, mm. all of John Carpenter's stuff, mm. and Phantasm. Phantasm and all that stuff, like those really B 80s movies. I loved when the synth owns being a synthesizer. Yeah. But when a synth tries to be like a John Williams orchestra, mm. it feels it just like it's reaching for something that it's not quite getting. But 
Mm. You liked it, so no fair point. Fair point. <laughs> I was gonna ask, like, were you kind of losing interest in the film around about the time that the scientists pop up? Definitely, definitely. That kind of, you know, when films overly explain things, it's like, mm. oh, okay, mm-hmm. the mystery's gone. I'm yeah, not, <laughs> I'm not as kind of invested. I think mm. that's part of it. Yeah, and I, I don't think that that guy who plays the main antagonist was well cast. Mm-hmm. His performance was pretty stiff. I'm sure he's a fine actor, but just wasn't right for that role. And then, yeah, the dialogue sort of got extra expository at that point. Sure. And all of the more interesting kills were in the first half. Yeah, and I felt like the limitations to the effects showed in the latter half of the film as well. As the scale goes up. Yeah. yeah. Because, the yeah, the blue screen effects were just like, yeah, this is obviously fake. Right. <laughs> Whereas all of the practical, like, crazy-ass latex goopy earlier scenes were just ridiculously amazing unbelievably good and almost like too disturbing i mean especially for a little kid oh yeah that scene with paul it all came back to me that dolly shot into paul it's not just the visuals it's the sound yeah and he's like help me (laughs) it is Disturbing. It sticks with you. And and I wonder if maybe like it's too jarring because that in the middle of this sort of 50s homage uh-huh. that's got elements of comedy. I don't know. Is that part of it? Because that was certainly popular, all that body horror stuff at the time. Hmm. Like people love that. Yeah. That sequence is really amazingly put together. One of the things that I really like about it is that it's not entirely practical. It doesn't have opticals, but it does do the thing that a lot of films from this era do, which is employ miniatures in a very cunning way <laughs> so that you don't even spot that they are miniatures. There is one shot in that sequence where it cuts to wide and she's sort of pulling back on his arm right before it snaps off in her hand. (laughs) And you get to see the full scale of the blob going out of the window behind him and his face Uh. starts collapsing. And that is actually a miniature, but it's there for like a second and then it's gone. And you totally buy it. I totally bought it. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens in Tremors as well, but perhaps you spot it a bit more there. But it's like aliens. I didn't realize until very recently that there are a lot of miniatures in Aliens, like the uh, power loader fight between Ripley and the Alien Queen in the finale. Yeah. There are single flash shots in that where you go to the wide of the full bay and the drop ships and just as she sort of smacks the Alien Queen and it goes over and it's a miniature, but it never reads as a miniature because it's just so perfectly lit. It's very well done. That's super cool. Yeah. I'd have to go. I'm going to revisit that and check that out. I went through some of them frame by frame. Because it's just uh, mind-boggling to me how they got that blob to do what it did. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm going to refer back to one of our previous episodes where we discussed the stuff, yeah. which I felt like was what they wanted to do, but the blob did it so much better. Yeah, and I heard as well that the budget for this film was 19 million, yeah, and nine million was spent on visual effects. And it really shows. Makes it sense. really, really, yeah. really shows. Yeah. Because, yeah, some of those things that they make the blob do is just, I don't know how. Like, I guess, like, a lot of backwards footage. Uh-huh. Is, is that what they did? Yeah. Um, and a lot of um, just flipping the camera upside down. Yeah. You've got the blob, like, shooting up to the ceiling and grabbing people. Like, I don't know how they did that. How do you think they did the um, the, the deputy being pulled into something and he was, like, broken in half backwards and it looked like there was no cut in between him screaming and struggling yeah. and then he gets yanked and he's broken in half backwards? Yeah. That's a really good little magician's trick, that one. Is this that... A hidden cut? No, no, there's no hidden cut. So he's there. He's got a dummy pair of legs and he's sort of laying down in the bookcase, but arched up. Uh-huh. And then he just screams and goes flat and then they fold the fake legs up in front of him and then he gets Oh, wow. But it's all really good little magician's tricks that are filmed practically and those work really well, whereas the opticals, as you said, Dan, not quite as successful, even though they're fun when it's sort of the blob rampaging through town, swatting people on uh, sidewalks yeah. and then <laughs> peeling up yeah. with them flat, flat on the surface. <laughs> so, yeah. It's funny. Like a giant tongue. Yeah, it's not as convincing, I don't think. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Although not the worst compositing for that time that I've seen. Like, No, not at all. 
pretty good for the time. Yeah, it's pretty good for the time. I mean, originally Chuck Russell was investigating the potential for CGI. Really? Oh, that would have been awful. They did some tests. The blob could have been the, the abyss, you're saying? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's what he was going for, but it, uh -huh. he just could not get it to work. So in the end, he went practical, but it stayed in his head. And then, of course, he went back to it when he did The Mask in 94, where they were only going for cartoonish anyway, so it was fine. Mm. Yeah. Mm, sure, sure. I read that um, the guy who worked on the effects in this movie also made the helmets for Daft Punk. Oh, oh. right. <laughs> okay. I don't know his name. I read that somewhere. I can't provide a source, but everybody should just believe me. Okay. <laughs> sure. We do. <laughs> Technically, this film is pretty amazing. What do we think of the cast? Because the cast has been sneeringly referred to as a collection of less talented siblings of more famous people. Oh, Ouch. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a bit mean, really. So you've got Kevin Dillon, who, of course, at the time was overshadowed by his brother, Matt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've got Donovan Leach, who is the son of Donovan, he of the hurdy-gurdy man, and brother of Ione Skye, who was quite a big thing at the time because she was the, the subject of John Cusack's affections in Say Anything with the ghetto blaster above the head. Who is Donovan Leach? He plays Paul. He plays the, oh, okay. the jock that gets eaten pretty quickly. I mean, he yeah. doesn't have a lot of screen time, but I think he's fine the whole time he's there. And Shawnee Smith, is she related to anybody famous? I don't think so. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought the cast was fine. Mm. Uh, I'm having a hard time diagnosing where exactly I disengage from this movie. I think it might be the writing. I thought the cast was fine. Mm. Maybe it's just that the characters are like too stock. You know, Kevin Dillon approaches being an interesting guy, but like his backstory is that his mom, I think, was a drug addict and, you know, didn't look out for him. So he has to look out for himself. And so the whole story is about him going back and forth between being self-interested and being empathetic and helping out somebody else. Mm. And that's a great arc for somebody to go through. But he felt like a pale shadow of uh, the guy in the breakfast club. Oh, yeah. Right. You know what my dad got me for Christmas? A carton of cigarettes. <laughs> Smoke up, Johnny. <laughs> you know, he's just like mad at the world because nobody's loved him. Mm. It's the exact same character. Yeah. But with really bad hair, I wanted to like him. I want to like him a lot. And I, and I do like him. I, but it's just the movie's not specific enough hmm. to get its hooks in me, I think. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like this movie developed a whole bunch of characters only to really swiftly kill them off as well. Uh. So it did feel a little jarring, especially the sheriff and the diner owner, how you know, they were going to go on a date and mm. it's, it's going to be all happy and they were going to save <laughs> each other. But no, they were just killed off. All right. So I think that in that respect, the movie kind of knew that you were going to get invested and then just kills them off. And so the characters that you were left with, you were kind of just trying to grasp onto something. Yeah. And I, yeah, I guess I agree that they were fine. They weren't amazing. But at the same time, the movie kind of knew what it was trying to do. It was a It was kind of a black comedy horror and didn't have lofty ambitions, I guess. Yeah. And you could almost say that Psycho suffers from the same problem, which is that once you've killed off Janet Lee, her sister and the private detective are not that interesting characters. Hmm. And I'm not necessarily rooting for them. I'm just interested to find out what the hell is going on. Yeah. Right. Whereas you don't have that here. I guess you have the, oh, the government is evil and this isn't even an alien thing. It's a germ warfare gone horribly wrong. It's an X-Files plot. Hmm. And I guess that's supposed to be a surprise, but it isn't really. I think as soon as they show up in hazmat suits without anybody having called them, you think, hmm, right. <laughs> yeah. something's not right here. And it got a little bit ridiculous as well because they're all in white hazmat suits with like white backpacks and white shoes. It's like, right. wow, they really got the uniform down pat. Um, <laughs> and what was in the backpacks as well? What, why were they wearing backpacks? Snacks. Yeah. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> yeah. um, one of them appears to have a bazooka for no apparent reason. Oh, yeah. As well. Yeah, they're all armed to the nines, like grenades, automatic rifles. And um, <laughs> Kevin Dillon can just hold that thing like it's a bottle rocket, like a firecracker. No, yeah. no kickback yeah. or anything like that. Just arm extended straight out. 
and he blows a manhole cover <laughs> and a truck up. Yeah. yeah. Just like that. He knows how to operate the thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just like Meg, who, after showing some initiative, she's not a screaming heroine just waiting to be saved, which is great to see mm. in 1988. It is. But she kind of morphs from a girl who's genuinely terrified of going into the deep, dark woods in the middle of the night and has to take a deep breath and steel herself to go in to being the kind of girl that picks up a machine gun and a grenade <laughs> and stands on top of a tanker screaming, come at me, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, don't get me wrong. I like a Buffy the badass cheerleader as much as the next person, but it just seems to... She doesn't seem to develop into that. It seems to come out of nowhere. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah, they were definitely going for like a Ripley thing there. I, I felt like the second half of the movie is being pulled apart by these different influences and they didn't know exactly what they wanted to be. If the movie was less well made, it would almost be more memorable. Or if it was more specifically 1980s instead of this weird mix of small town 1950s and 1980s, mm -hmm. then maybe then it would have more of an impact. I mean, I, I like it and it, it's mm. always going to have a place in my subconscious for those death scenes. Mm. Yeah, the end of the movie really does turn into sort of a greatest hits of things that they've seen in other movies. So you have the whole government people saying, I want the organism alive. What about the civilians? They're expendable, which of course is Ash's special order 937 from Alien. Right. Mm. And the Han Solo-esque uh, bad boy on the motorcycle being told, look after yourself, I guess it's what you're best at, isn't it? Which is straight out of Star Wars. And you've even got a group of people looking at a schematic of sewers, in this case, rather than ventilation. And the female character saying, yes, we've got to seal off these ducks here, here and here, which is aliens. And mm. I don't, it just starts to feel like fan fiction rather than <laughs> an original piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I wonder where that came in. I wonder if that was in the script or if they had studio influence i mean yeah. i i kind of liked it like it wasn't like scary movie or not another teen movie or anything it, oh god <laughs> overt references i i don't know i think it was a horror movie made for horror fans mm. and it did that well their ending the, the right at the end though was odd to me the very ending yeah when they, they were pretty much just setting up a sequel right having the reverend have a jar of the blob stuff right it felt tapped on and unnecessary right <laughs> and kind of cheesy effects too with his fake hand oh yes. yeah <laughs> but i do remember when i was a kid that was one of the images that stuck with me uh-huh okay yeah and interesting casting thing on that guy Del Close, do you know who that is? No, I don't. No. Del Close is kind of a legendary improviser and comedian who invented a lot of the forms of modern improv comedy. Oh. I used to be involved with uh, the improv scene as a director and just like hung out with a lot of comedians. And they had the Del Close Marathon in New York every year where they would do three improv theaters going 24 hours a day wow. doing shows for like three days. Wow. So it was really funny and like really drunk and really sweaty. But that was my only context for Del Close was this bearded guy on a poster during the Del Close marathon. And then when I was looking into this movie, I found out that he was in it, but he was also in the second blob incarnation from the early 70s. Oh, oh wow. wow. The one directed by J.R. from Dallas. Yes, <laughs> by J.R. Yeah, Ewing, yeah. So he's kind of like a... Um, <laughs> Like a big blob aficionado who's written about the original movie oh. and how it's a metaphor for communism. Mm. Yes, the Great Red Terror. Right. Did you guys see the original? No, I have not seen the original. I would love to see it. I have seen it. I haven't seen the 70s sequel. I can't find it anywhere. Yeah, I haven't seen either one of them. Was it was the original good? No. <laughs> yeah, how, how does it compare? Well, it's kind of the same setup, and it's sort of charmingly cheap. It's basically just lumps of jello being injected onto miniature sets, and it's oh, not, yeah. <laughs> not terribly convincing. But Steve McQueen has 
has obviously a great presence in it. He doesn't really sell being a teenager. He was 27 at the time and looked about 40. Oh, right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's much more of a kitsch movie because it has this ridiculous cha-cha-cha opening title written by Burt Bacharach, Beware the Blob. Is it Beware of the Blob? That's on my Halloween playlist. Oh, wow. <laughs> he creeps. He slides. He da, da, da. Yeah. That's the one. I love that, like, sci fi kitsch stuff. <laughs> yeah. But it, as that as your opener, it's kind of sets a certain tone <laughs> right. for the rest of the movie. Whereas this one goes for this really mysterious vibe. You're coming through the stars to the earth, through the clouds, to this small town Mm. that's strangely deserted. And then you pan across in this beautiful crane shot and you find out why it's deserted. It's because everyone's at the football game. Mm. (laughs) So there are some nice moments of satire in this movie. And as you say, Dan, it's not sort of scary movie pastiche silliness. It still takes its main thread of a story seriously, Mm. Mm. but it still manages to poke a little bit of fun here and there. Like, I love when they take the homeless guy into the emergency room. The first thing that the nurse says after they say, he's got this weird glob of acid on his hand that's melting his hand away. And she just says, does he have Blue Cross? (laughs) (laughs) Really not concerned because this is Reagan's America. So... Mm. Good representation of the American medical system. Yeah. And of course, you have the movie within a movie going on. Which oh, yes. Yeah. It's a bit of a dig, too. <laughs> I like that part where the kids are like, um, yeah, it's about a, a hockey mask wearing killer who murders teenagers, but there's no sex in it, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, just your average slice and dice. It's called the, what is it, the garden? Garden tool, garden shed killer, garden, garden <laughs> yes. tool massacre. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's really not taking it seriously. And it's if this is a love letter to the sort of 50s monster on the loose movies, and then the movie within a movie is a very savage dig at the Friday the 13th series, which by this point really was getting pretty ridiculous. Mm, mm. Yeah, this was probably like up to Jason Takes Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now it's time for random trivia. So, Dan, what morsel of trivia has slithered out of a meteorite onto your hand today? (laughs) Today, my piece of trivia is to do with the frozen blob crystals. Did you know they were actually rock salt uh, crystals that were just dyed purple? (laughs) How do you dye rock salt? I was thinking that as well, uh, because obviously rock salt is soluble in water, so I I guess they must have painted it on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. They're nice, though. Yeah, they look look great. They look sparkly and crystalline, so Mm. they did a good job there. I do have another piece of trivia, actually. So um, there is one scene with a partially dissolved but still alive hazmat guy. This is after the towering blob starts rampaging down the street. So that guy is actually a a stuntman called Nobel Craig, and he is actually a triple amputee who lost both legs, an arm, and an eye while serving in the Vietnam War. So I guess he gets all these roles as blown up people, dissolved people. It reminds me actually of, of our episode of Black Sheep because there is one scene where a guy gets his foot bitten off by a killer sheep and throws his foot at the sheep. And that also was another amputee. So amputees, you've got to get into show business. Yes, and actually I've just remembered that the same guy, Noble Craig, plays the vomit creature in Poltergeist 2. Oh, right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Craig T. Nelson drinks this drink and there's like something inside the drink and he gets possessed and spews this thing up and it turns into this big sort of horrible creature that has no arms and legs and wiggles out of the room. Yeah, it's the same guy. Wow, okay. What a fascinating (laughs) job to have. Yeah. And that's our trivia. Can I pose a question about this film? So there's a bit of misogyny in it. Oh. Like the date rape scene. Ooh. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not great. <laughs> 
What were your thoughts? Well, this is the Scott character who isn't presented, in fairness, as a great guy from the outset. I mean, he's pretty much a dick from the pharmacy scene where we're introduced to him. Mm. And then we see him on his date with pre-Baywatch Arika Aleniak. And he's got this trunk of his car is decked out with booze and tons of cheap class rings that he can give to his special girl. And he's just plying her with booze and unbuttoning her blouse when she's passed out. So, yeah, it's pretty date rapey. But then he gets killed by the blob. So, but so does she. So is that better? I don't know. It doesn't feel good. Yeah, because there's a few other scenes as well. I think Eddie, one of the kids that sneaks into the cinema he says something like oh check out the body on the blonde or something um, and then he gets killed as well yeah. but you've also got our main character Brian he says something to Meg like oh you're high strung or something like that mm. <laughs> there's this kind of digs at, at, at females being like annoying or like just objectified all throughout the film but then she does triumph at the end so I guess is that. Yeah, and their relationship doesn't become, like, they don't make out at the end. No, true. Or it doesn't become, like, his reward is is getting a kiss or something like that. No, there is that. I mean, she does kick ass, and but not fully. She still manages to get her foot tangled up in a hose pipe that appears from nowhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfectly shaped to her foot, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, real hazard. The only thing that really stood out to me was the date rape thing, which I don't think you'd ever see in a movie now. Oh, no way. But you see yeah. it also in 16 Candles. It's played for laughs mm. when Anthony Michael Hall wakes up with the older girl the next morning. And she doesn't remember having had sex with him, but he remembers it. Mm. And it's played kind of as a joke. Mm. Yeah, there would be a, an uproar if you had a scene like this car date scene in a movie now. Yeah. Whether the character was punished or not, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think so. I mean, there's also another scene where... Um, Brian, this is kind of not really related, but when Brian is arrested and that other police officer is trying to get in his face, his name's like Briggs or something, and he's like, what are you going to do now? I'm, am I too close or something? And, and Brian just licks his face. That's great. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> that to me is one of the best moments of non-special effects in the movie. That, that, yeah. that felt like so real and maybe improvised by the actors. Yeah. That, like, I would love more of that stuff in that movie. And completely unexpected as well because I, I thought, you know, he was just going to spit in his face like they always do in movies. But no, he just yeah. licks his face. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah, and of course, that's Paul McCrane, who of course will forever be remembered for fans of horror in the 80s of being the guy that ends up all melted in Robocop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. He's probably a fine actor who's done many amazing things on stage and screen, but he will forever be the melted guy in Robocop. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of lovely little moments in this, like the licking of the face and... There are a few funny lines in there too. The comedy works great in the first half. I think the whole like condom gag works great, oh, yeah. and the payoff when the dad lowers the newspaper and he says "ribbed." <laughs> yeah. That's a real. That's, that's a so genuine good. laugh. That's yeah. very good. Yeah, the look yeah. on his face. He's just mortified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's one of those really, really overwritten gags in the setup where you know it's going to pay off big. Yeah, and it, it really does. Yeah. It's the word "rib" to that really gets. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I felt like the payoff was was unexpected because it's the next scene. There's a lead up to like, oh, I have to introduce you to my dad, mm. and so you forget about the previous scene. And so when you have that payoff, it's like, oh. That's so, so good. Yeah. Yeah, I was definitely laughing my head off for that. Yeah. And I think the movie kind of forgets to carry on with that tone after the guys in the hazmat suits turn up and it's all about rocket launches and... Action movie. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Hey, hey, I'm sure you're all in excruciating, acid-dissolving eagerness for the Majestic Moobly Awards, where we nominate our favourite gloopy parts of the film in the number of face-melting categories. (laughs) 
Best quote. My favorite quote is actually from the movie within a movie, The Garden Tool Massacre. Oh yes. And it's from the scene where the two camp counselors are enjoying a smooch by the fireside and they're interrupted by a loud buzzing noise and they see this figure uh, hacking away at some hedges and the guy says, "Isn't it awfully late to be trimming hedges?" <laughs> <laughs> moonlight hedge trimming and when he looks up of course he's wearing a hockey mask and the guy says hockey season ended months ago (laughs) (laughs) that's that's really not your primary Uh, concern at this point yeah yeah oh dear it's a really savage satire of friday the 13th and uh, i enjoyed it very Mm, much mm. (laughs) i really love seeing movies within movies especially horror movies because the horror movie within the horror movie Mm -hmm. is always a really bad horror movie (laughs) it is yeah yeah matinee is famous for that the joe dante movie that duncan mentioned that has the movie mant half man half ant which is really hilarious Oh, and how about you? Yeah, my favourite quote, uh, Duncan has already mentioned it. It's the ribbed quote. Uh, it's <laughs> I just love the reveal because the father is just holding up this newspaper. You have no idea who the father's going to be. And the reveal of his face and him realising <laughs> that, oh shit, it's the same kid from the pharmacy. And his just mortified look and, and he just kind of mutters, Ripped. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's so good. I love it. Most 80s moment. I will actually say the most 80s part of this film is whenever someone turns the light off in a room, everything just goes blue. And it's that real, like, <laughs> way too luminous blue tone to everything. It's it's like the lighting guy has to time it exactly right to turn on the blue lights because um, <laughs> darkness in 80s films is always blue. It is. Yeah. And I love the fact that in some movies that don't quite get the synchronization right, there's yeah. like a bit of a delay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, for me, it was definitely poor Candy Clark running out of her diner and trying to desperately phone somebody in a phone booth. Because are there any phone booths anymore? I I don't think there are. Actually, surprisingly, there is a very ominous phone booth down my street. And it's really strange. It's it's about a block away from me and it's just on a corner and it's lit. Right. And it doesn't make any sense why it's a residential area there's no shops on that street (laughs) why is there a phone booth there i don't know wow have you ever gone in there to see if it has a dial tone i don't think i have but um yeah baxter loves it he always has a sniff when we go for our walks (laughs) (laughs) does he best hair or costume for me i think we should focus on meg with her really heavily hairsprayed pompadour hairdo and her mum's borrowed brown cashmere sweater and a string of pearls, for God's sake. Yeah. White trousers and tan-coloured high heels. And this is her date outfit. I know. She goes out dressed like her mother. Mm. <laughs> she must be the most middle-class teenager I have ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, small towns, I guess. Yeah, this is true. (laughs) (laughs) What did you go for? I I would have to agree with Duncan. Uh, If you looked up badass bad boy in the dictionary in the 80s, (laughs) you would find Brian's look. I mean, leather jacket, ripped jeans, Mm. mullet. Yeah. What else would a badass look like? Yeah. Favourite scene! Oh, wow. I mean, how many amazing scenes are in this film? Like, every single death scene was spectacular. I was kind of wishing that we had uh, sci-fi on-screens Jeff with us for this episode because he loves his death scenes in his horror movies. Yeah. I think he would have loved talking about these death sequences. He would have been over the moon talking about this movie because every single death scene was mind-blowing and Mm. very innovative and and nothing you'd ever seen before. Mm. I mean, I I would have to say the movie theatre scene was really a highlight for me. It was just so Mm. disturbing with those flickering lights. It kind of reminded me of like Jacob's Ladder, 
um, that sort of really stroby oh, sort of right, yeah. you're not really sure what you're looking at then people getting mm. melted and tentacles and all sorts of things like I feel like they really utilized that the blob could take any shape so it did have tentacles mm. sometimes and sometimes it looked like a whole bunch of tongues yes. and sometimes it was just a big globular mass of gelatin yeah and yours Conrad well mine is the death of Paul just because it oh. is so shocking and so intense after you've just seen an old man with a sort of gloopy bit on his hand and you think oh this film's going to be okay yeah and then you see this poor guy screaming in pain for help with a face like a kabuki mask behind this layer of gelatinous slime that's sort of sliding over him and enveloping him Meg tries to pull him to safety and his arm comes off in her hand Yeah, it's just so shocking Mm. because this is the guy you thought was going to be the hero and he's dead exactly yeah it's a really vicious and shocking and well executed scene and as I said it's great that it includes uh, techniques like miniatures and you don't even notice Mm. yeah I love that sequence I think it's great yeah I mean especially that last image of his face just melting off and he's like screaming and melting underneath the the blob (laughs) and it's holy crap that's yeah nightmare material right there yeah it is i mean let's face it meg should just be catatonic (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) most cliche horror moment mine is actually a science fiction cliche i think and it's that moment where dramatic rumbling in the night and lights blazing through trees creating god rays turn out to be not a spaceship but a government owned evil helicopter oh. and <laughs> and i thought i've seen this so many times i think spielberg is probably the progenitor of this in close encounters but i've seen it in the x files and so many other movies since then and TV shows right Uh, so yeah dramatic rumbling and lights turn out to be a helicopter and not a spaceship I think Mm. that is my cliche for this one right well I mean mine is very similar it's it's just every time there is the woods in a horror movie it's always foggy and just a tremendous (laughs) amount of fog and mist and always backlit as well so it just looks so spooky and haunting (laughs) and I love how they always get the lights to kind of radiate out in this kind of star shape passion it's it's always i'm always really impressed by that and but yeah every single horror movie where you go into the woods that's what you gotta get and blue definitely blue of course (laughs) best special effect i mean the whole movie is my favorite special effect really um but i mean i want to talk about one that probably no one will talk about and that's the comet I really loved how that looked. It looked like it was in shot. Like, it didn't look like it was composited. Maybe it was, and I'm just terrible at sort of identifying (laughs) that. But it wasn't a ball, a fiery ball. Like, you could see there was, like, some sort of spherical shape at at the front of it, and then there was this stream of, like, Mm. fire behind it as the sort of comet's tail, and then it flies overhead of the homeless guy and then crashes into a set of trees in the distance. And I just thought it was really, really well done and believable. And I didn't for a second think, oh, that's a miniature. I believed it. (laughs) Yeah, it is really good, actually. I love the fact that when it flies over, even if it is a composited element that's added to the shot, which, of course, is easier against a black night sky than... Mm -hmm you know, daylight blue because you can't see the matte fringes. But there's lighting that sort of pink flashes of light that flow across the ground as it goes over. Mm -hmm. So even if it is an element that's been added afterwards, the lighting that they add to the scene really sells it as being part of the shot. It's great. And your favourite special effect, Conrad? There are just so many to choose from. But actually, I think it's probably the sink death and specifically one shot in that which it's just I don't know it really makes me giggle it's the point where the foot is sort of being ground down into the plug socket and the trainer pops off oh right (laughs) I just love how much effort obviously goes into a moment like that and it's sort of comical but awful at the same time so yeah 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 (laughs) favourite sound effect 
I didn't have a specific sound. I think generally I just really loved the approach to the blob because it didn't sound so much like slurping or squishy sort of noises, you know, moving a spoon around in a lasagna kind of uh -huh. stuff. It sounds like a rumbling gurgling stomach mm. which gave you the impression that a it was a living thing and b that it was always hungry yeah and i really loved that approach to it right. it's just right. yeah i like that i thought that was good yeah I, lo I loved all the shrieking sounds that seemed to emanate um mm. pig squeals at some point yeah there was a whole bunch of just <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was always an, a really unsettling sound. So every time it was on screen, I felt unnerved and like, get away from that thing. Uh, so mm. I, I definitely achieved that. Uh, my favorite sound effect is a very simple sound. It's a projectionist. So the projectionist is playing with a yo-yo and it's just got this very <laughs> simple, like kind of whizzing, whipping sound, like a whoosh, Yes. And then the blob enters into the projection room and consumes the projectionist. And in the next scene, uh, the manager comes up to investigate. And then you just see a yo-yo descend from the <laughs> ceiling. And it's just the same sound, the little sound yeah. the camera pans up and and you see a half dissolved projectionist just screaming <laughs> pinned to the ceiling by the blob and it's yeah. oh it's amazing <laughs> i just love that sort of that use of that very simple sound to heighten the tension of that scene it's lovely that it ties back in so you know exactly who this is exactly but as well as that it's kind of comical that he's still playing with the oh owner. yeah oh yeah <laughs> Why? <laughs> but yeah, it's very funny. Mm. <laughs> Most funniest moment. I think it goes without saying. It's the ribbed, <laughs> the ribbed it is, scene. It is, yeah. It's just such a well set up joke with a great payoff. And uh, yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I had written down as well. Uh -huh. I think it is a far and beyond. I just love that after all the setup to that particular joke in the pharmacy scene, check out the pharmacy scene, listeners. It's very funny because mm -hmm. the scene is funny in and of itself. So you don't think it's going to have another payoff. And then when it does have one later, it's a killer and it's just one word and it's very funny. <laughs> And that's our Moobly Awards. It is. Did you want my verdict? How are you still here, Gary? Okay, what were your thoughts? I couldn't understand why he said... Nobody puts baby in the corner because she wasn't in a corner. Ah, uh, you're talking about dirty dancing, aren't you? Yeah, strangest horror movie I've ever seen. I wasn't scared at all. Welcome back, and it's the vital moment of the pod where we present our final verdicts for the 1988 horror fest, The Blob. Should this gloopy film be let go into the world to melt flesh as it pleases, or should it be frozen into a million shiny purple crystals and be shoveled back into the oubliette to be lost forever? <laughs> so, Duncan, you are our guest today. Uh, you chose The Blob. What's your final thoughts? I would say on the strength of the visuals alone that this movie is worth checking out, especially for fans of body horror and practical effects. Mm. It's also, I think, a great lesson in how a movie can be very well written and very well made and still not quite work. And so we can learn things from movies that don't work sometimes more than we can from really great movies. Mm. And um, so for those reasons, I would say let's keep the blob because it's uh, blobtacular <laughs> and should not be forgotten. <laughs> I mean, I 100% agree. I think visual effects alone just make this film fantastic. And I think people that are huge fans of horror need to watch this movie. There are so many tributes and references and it delivers. It really delivers. If you're into gory deaths, this is the film for you. <laughs> uh, and I like how it, it tricks you into investing into characters and then killing them off uh, really quickly. <laughs> and yeah, it does have a, a sort of slow, troubled second half. But overall, I think it's it's definitely a horror hit for me. Yeah. Well... 
I don't think I disagree with you, actually. I do think it has some incredible special effects set pieces. It has some really fun bits of trickery, even in terms of the kills, actually. You know, the guy that leans into the sink with his hand and you think that's when he's going to be attacked, but it's not. Mm. It's always sort of getting you at unexpected moments and and surprising you. It does leave you without characters that you're particularly attached to because it's killed everybody off (laughs) by the end and introduces a completely thankless late 80s post-Watergate the government is evil subplot that really doesn't pay off particularly. But I still think it does work and it's certainly never dull and never Mm. boring and I don't think it jumps the shark and makes you lose all interest in the movie. So I think it should be saved for sure. Yay. (laughs) Yay. I'm so happy I get to watch the 1988 remake of The Blob again in my life. (laughs) I'm going to show this to my kid. She's only four weeks old, but in a few more weeks she'll be ready for it, I think. Ah. Start them early. Yeah, good idea. (laughs) Well, it's great to see another movie escape the oubliette. Uh, Duncan, it's been fantastic having you here to talk about this movie, and I'm sure people would like to follow you and follow your exploits from now on, too. What what have you got coming up, and how can people keep up with what you're doing? Oh, I think the best way to keep up with me is to follow my YouTube channel, So You're Dating a Vegan, Uh, and mm -hmm. it's not necessarily for vegans only. It's kind of like a side project I use as a filmmaking sandbox Mm -hmm. that's about my relationship with my wife. And that's kind of my only presence on social media. Uh, We have Dating a Vegan on Instagram Mm -hmm. and we have the YouTube channel, So You're Dating a Vegan. And then also I have a website, duncanskiles.org, where I post stuff that I do just as one-offs and little documentaries that I make and uh, so if you enjoyed Clove Hitch and you want to see more of my stuff, just go check out that website and I will see you on the internet. Great, mm. great. Any Anything on the near horizon film-wise? Yeah, totally. I'm working on another movie. It's another dark thing that's inspired by a true crime deal. And it's, you know, that balance that I'm trying to find again between what makes this worth sharing with the world and not just being some depressing fucked up thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's called The Company, and I'm pretty psyched about it. And I would, uh, you know, expect to see something related to that coming within the next year. Wow. Not the movie being done, but hopefully, you know, that I've got the script ready to go. Amazing. Can't wait. Well, I will definitely be looking forward to that. And um, I'm also going to be directing every episode of uh, the next season of Black Mirror. I'm just making stuff up now, but if (laughs) anybody wanted to (laughs) hire me for that or... I don't know. That show Dark is pretty good. Um, like stuff like that. I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, open assignments, creature features, um, body horror, true crime podcasts. I'm, I'm available. Well, <laughs> investors out there, please hire this man. Yep. <laughs> please do. <laughs> so, Conrad, next episode, what are we doing? Well, it's a special patron's choice episode. So, oh, wow. Yes, yeah, so we polled our patrons and asked them to nominate a film each, and all of them have been mounted on the Oubliette Roulette. Oubliette Roulette. I'll just roll it out for you. Oh, you've oiled it. Uh, actually, I have it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to give it a spin, Conrad? I do. Hang on. Oh. What's oh. it going to be? Oh. Ooh, Enemy Mine. Wow, that movie's been on my radar for a long time, but I've never seen it. Really? I'm surprised, given your well-known loathing of Dennis Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Inner Space has quelled my dislike of Dennis, so uh, I'm a bit more open now. Ah, good. Well, Enemy Mine is a 1985 West German-American science fiction film directed by Wolfgang Peterson of the never-ending story fame, starring Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. It's pretty much just a two-man movie. Oh, okay. Like Before Sunrise, that sort of thing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They just wander around an alien planet just talking (laughs) until the sun comes up. And fall in love. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm falling in love. Oh, wow. Pretty much like that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm looking forward to this. And who chose this one, by the way? So this was chosen by our patron, Gary. So congratulations, Gary. For our other patrons, don't lose heart. We'll do another one of these episodes soon. And if any other listeners would like to get in on this and uh, nominate a movie for our Patrons' Choice episodes then head on over to Patreon. We are there as Movie Oubliette, and you can sponsor episodes for as little as a dollar. That's so cheap. It is. It's a bargain. And if you want to follow our exploits and keep on top of our episodes, we are on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And email us on movie.oubliet at gmail.com. Yes, we love to hear from you, so do stay in touch. And I know we've already mentioned it, but please give us a rating and review because it always helps us out. It does. If you've enjoyed the show, tell everyone so that we can <laughs> get more listeners. Yeah, you can just tell your mum. Yes, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks again to Duncan. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was really fun. Bye for now. Bye. Ciao. <laughs> You want the ribbed or the regular?